Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Cheeky Natives. Um, and yes. we're so looking forward to a wonderful conversations with authors, with musicians, with actors this year, just in order to continue archiving our lives, you know, our interior lives as Black people. Um, and it's me, Little Honolo. And, uh, you know, I'm with my favorite, um, Dr. Slay. Hey, Dr. Slay. Hey. And, and uh, we are also joined today by a very special um, Cheeky Native, um, a friend of, of uh, a friend of the Cheeky Natives. We're joined by Sue Nyati, who is now the author of three books. Um, her first book being The Polygamist, which was self-published. Her second book published by Pan Macmillan. Um, the Gold Diggers, which uh, we have a conversation uh, with. So if you want to check that out, definitely just um, follow our earlier conversation with Sue. And now we'll be recording this conversation and being in conversation with her about um, A Family Affair, which is her third novel. Welcome, 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 Sue. Welcome. I'm, I feel welcome. Thank you, guys. I'm happy to be on the podcast for the second time. Yay! It's a privilege, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose, Sue, you know, um, we, I, I think this is going to be a slightly different conversation to the conversation we've had about uh, family affair. Just one of the reasons is, you know, the, the time that we find ourselves in, but also um, the sort of themes that you explore in Goldig, um, in a family affair that weren't necessarily explored in um, your, your, your first two books. Um, so for me, what has been a really, you know, a, a thing that has constantly been at the at the forefront of my mind is is this question of audience, right? I, I think often of of Baldwin who writes that you don't write a book for a specific audience, right? That would be absurd because you don't know who will resonate with the book and why they would resonate with it. But I wanted to know if there was an intended audience that you were writing for when you were writing a family affair. No. I mean, if you think of how this book began, I started writing it when I was 21, 1920, yeah, 2021, thereabouts, when I started varsity. And for me, what, what prompted this book, I was writing from, you know, as a young woman from a perspective, having grown up in a, a patriarchal society. And I was, you know, thinking of the expectations of me as a woman. You know, here I was going to varsity um, to get a degree. But, you know, me getting the edu- you know, the degree was seen, you know, it was women were, were educated so that you have a backup plan, you know, because, you know, you have something to fall back on. But at the forefront was, I had, there was an expectation for my parents to get married. So, so whilst you're going to get the degree, it's fine. You need that. You need to, you know. Because, you know, the, the idea was, my mom used to say, you never know what marriage will serve you. So if you're educated, at least you have something to fall back on. But I still had to, to tick that marriage box, you know. And, I'd, you know, I'd seen other, you know, my cousins and other, you know, females around me, you know, having to deal with this expectation. So that's what prompted the book. Because, you know, I was, I just, you know, I wanted to write about stuff, you know, stuff that was bothering me. So, so, so I can actually say, it was, it started as something, it was a book, you know, for me, my musings about my society. Um, and I think, and because it, you know, it, it stayed a long time, not, you know, being published. 
there was a, a manuscript I could visit, you know, over the years at different stages in my life. So I went back to it when I was late 20s, in my 30s, and, you know, finally in my 40s, you see. And, yeah. So I can't say, you know, I had anyone in, you know, an, an audience in mind, no. It, it was really prompted about my observations about the society that I, I'd grown up and the expectations of women. So, I mean, you, you mentioned that you've written this book over effectively what is two decades of your life, right? How, how is this book different now than it would have been had you published it at, say, 25 or even, or even 30, right? Um, I'm really curious about how your life experiences have shaped the ways in which this book has been written. Look, it's, it's definitely different because in terms of, there's a lot that I bring from my own personal life in terms of experience, maturity, I mean, my, and, and the writing as well. I mean, the way I wrote in my 20s and the way I write now is different. So there's been a lot of evolution in, in the writing, in the perspective, um, and the content, and yeah, and even the character evolution, that has also changed from, you know, the, the characters are essentially the same, but they've also grown as well, I think, over the years. So I think... Mm-hmm. That's what the, the, the beauty of time, I guess, because you can always go back and rethink things. Mm. I wanted I, to, yes, Alma, you can go. <laughs> so I just prompted by something that Sue just said about, you know, rethinking things. I think that one of the prominent themes in this book is, is family, right? So what constitutes family, what, what it means to define your own family, and I guess what it means to rethink what a family looks like. And so I want us to expand a little bit on the idea of, of themes, right? Of family, particularly as a theme, because you write about families in very interesting ways. And I want you to please take us through why you wrote about families in the way that you did, but also what you hoped to do in writing about families in the way that you did. Um, so I think the starting point is, you know, we, we all come from a family, you know, and, a family, the way you grow up shapes you. Your relationship with members of your family also shapes the person you become. So, you know, family is such an integral part of our lives. So whether you love your family or you hate them, Oksalaya, you're from a family. And even if when you feel like you don't have a family, there's always that search for the family, the identity and of what it means. So for me, it was, it, you know, I, I just felt, you know, it was like, <laughs> I don't know, it was, we, we, we are what we are because of the families uh, that we come from, you know, the values and structures and everything. But also families are interesting to me because families love to predict perfection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I understand why, because there are no perfect families, but there's, there's this obsession with projecting a facade of perfection. So I found that very interesting, keeping up appearances. And so because of that, you know, there's a lot of things that are hidden, a lot of things that we don't deal with in families. And, you know, uh, so that was interesting to me because that's how the, the secrets, the lies, um, you know, and, and the destructive stuff that happens in families that affects, you know, the people growing up in those families. So, you know, so it was an interesting subject in that sense. I mean, if you think of the Bible, um, I always refer to this. The first family you meet was dysfunctional. You know, Cain mm-hmm. killed how toxic is 
But that's, we are obsessed with having these picture-perfect families. Mm, you know? mm. And I don't get it, yeah. It's interesting because you, you speak about the idea of like, even if you don't want, you have the family you have. But, you know, over the years and, and, and probably for many decades now, there's been this idea of chosen family. And I think about Kholisa yeah, in particular and how in many ways Kholisa creates her own chosen family, right, as sort of like a blended family. So I suppose in many ways you also write against the narrative of like you've got the family you've got because Kholisa makes a decision to be like, yeah, you may not be happy with my life decisions, but I'm deciding to create my own family. So I want to speak a little bit about that, like the idea of chosen family. And I bring this because it's, 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 it's mainly prevalent in, 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 in the queer community. Uh, where, you know, we are often shunned and chased away from our homes and we really have no choice but to create our own family because, you know, in some ways we need some form of support. But you see in Kholiswa's case as well that there's this idea of wanting to choose your own family. Um, Mm. You know, bearing in mind the background that she comes from, right, she comes from a very religious family, a family that believes like you must beg a or a family that believes that if you're not married and if you are sinful in the way that Kholisa was, then you, 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 you chased away. But Kholisa sort of recreates that and creates her own family. And I wanted to know some of your musings on that. Yeah, because, I mean, if you think about the way families are structured now, they don't look like the traditional family that the Mafus represent. I mean, now you have families where you have two moms and children. You have one mom and children two dads and children, you know, and I think what's important, it doesn't matter what it looks like. Like I always tell my son, um, it's me and him. Right. And I, I say to him, we are a family. This is, this is us. We are complete. <laughs> Don't ever think there's a missing <laughs> piece. You know, we are a family as we are. And I think it's trying to rethink, you know, the way we look at families uh, and that, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to look at a certain way. As long as you find family, it could even be family amongst friends, you know, um, and I think it's important. You, whatever choices you make, I think you need to own them and be able to stand, you know, by them in the face of a society very critical um, that di- wants to dictate how things should look like. So for me, it's, it's the power of choice and owning your choice. We're taking a short break. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Speaking of the power of choice, right, um, there is an interesting dynamic that the women in this book have with choice, right? I think that even the most... Um, even the most educated and the most empowered of these women find that their choices are limited by this very patriarchal, hyper-Christian environment that they operate in. And for me, I think a particularly interesting example of this, this 
choice, I suppose, is um, Zandile, right? So Zandile knows that she wants to move to Cape Town because of the economic crisis in, in Zim. There's all of these things, right? But so much of her ability to make those kinds of decisions is limited by the environment that she finds herself. And yet she makes an unconventional choice. She leaves she leaves her family despite the fact that they're so against this decision and i i wanted to know about why you or how you wrote about the relationship that your your characters particularly your female characters have with choice right because we often get told that like or there's a feeling that you know educated women have this plethora of choices and they are empowered in ways that potentially other women may not be and and yeah there seems to be a criticism of that and i think you use the choice to do that so if we could just talk a little bit about that i don't necessarily think you know that women have a plethora of choices in a patriarchal society and the society i'm writing about specifically is zimbabwean society right and so in that society, you have two types of men. So you have the benevolent patriarchs, like Wundaba, and then you have the toxic patriarchs, okay? We need to talk you know? about Ndaba and that Wesley. Wabana, those two, we must talk about them. But you that see, was really problematic. <laughs> yeah, you have, so you, in that, the choices you have there is if you get a, a benevolent patriarch, right? Like Wundaba, he will give you freedom in so much as you toe the line. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, so yes, you might be educated, but you still need to toe the line in terms of you will still have to do your, your wifely duties, have the kids, keep home, that, that sort of thing. So Zandile is trying to also have a life. And so she, she breaks out of that. She tries to break out and forge it. She, she need, actually needs to fight for it because it, it doesn't come easy in those kind of setups. And that really was to say that, you know, even for the educated women, it's, it's not easy, you know, uh, making those choices. Sometimes it's a fight for you to, to actually live out your, your own choices. I mean, speaking about benevolent patriarchy, I, I want to speak about Ndaba for a bit, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And um, it's interesting because I particularly, when I read this story and I met Ndaba, I was very mistrusting of Ndaba. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was confronting also my own like prejudices, right? And my own like traumas and lived experiences around men in general. Um, and I, I was really like, I was mistrusting. I was just like, there's no way that this person is like this, right? There's no way that this person, uh, as you said, allows you to toe the line um, when you, you're sort of navigating. But when Ndaba became, I'm the head of the household, uh, I will take care of my woman, when he started doing that, then I was like, mm, mm hmm, that is you. This is how I know you to be, right? Because it's interesting to think about men who um, exist in a patriarchal world and they are not beating their wives, they are not cheating on their wives, they're not emotionally abusing their wives, they aren't doing what we expect men in a toxic patriarchal society to do. But what they are doing is being patriarchal by being like, I'm the head of the household, right? And uh, uh, in my language, we'll say, you know, which means 
my my shoe that kukali katula sam like like yeah yeah and 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 that it's interesting for me to think about that right to think about men like ndaba who aren't overtly abusive but are very controlling right and coercive in the way that they navigate the relationship and i wanted to speak a little bit about that right because i think you may have encountered a lot of reviewers or a lot of book clubs right so the, really, can you hear me yeah you were frozen but okay can you hear me now yes okay so i wanted to say like there's a a, a lot of um conversation around in daba has been this really wonderful person right but also oh, exists actually not <laughs> yeah okay oh oh tell us tell us tell us so the response from a lot of women um they don't like him yes he said they like too good to be true and um, which has become very strange because wesley everyone is agreeing that they hate wesley they hate what he he represents i mean they hate him and there's no doubt about their hate and then i say to myself but undaba is an opposite of wesley so what you know so what do you want as women you know so i, I couldn't kind of they're like no we don't we don't believe him and some people are like you know i think he was having an affair at work so i think it speaks to you know women in general i think we become very jaded i think you know i mean for us to to sit there and say men like undaba don't exist at all even with his flaws undaba was not perfect let's not let's get that straight but they still rejected him you know so i found that very interesting um i think it's interesting that characterization because i thought that excuse me their relationship was actually just the telltale signs of like a of what like an emotionally abusive relationship may look like right because even in the beginning he has tendencies to actually be quite controlling he's he yeah. seems to be quite domineering he's a lot older than he's older than her so there's already this unequal power dynamic and even the way that they navigate their relationship for me i felt that in the beginning of of the book you actually start to see the signs of what is so there's a precedent that says so you see it almost feels like it's a harbinger of what's to come right because you see that he can be quite domineering and and you realize that what may start off and i guess that's in many ways what relationships can be like what you may find endearing qualities in your partner in the beginning often tends to be qualities that like will suffocate you and irritate you later on right so it's it's nice in the beginning potentially that he's taking control but she begins to realize as she comes into her own right because she is like a grown woman she has children she has a career she realizes just how suffocating he can be and i thought that was an interesting commentary on on relationships right that there are things about your partner you may really like in the beginning but with experience and with age um and i guess whatever happens around you those qualities are no longer enduring and and i think that so many older women can relate to that right that the things you allowed your husband to do or demand in your 20s or your 30s are things you'll never tolerate in your 60s and people will think that you've changed whereas you've just had your life experience evolve your tolerance for things changes and i think um what was also important um with with zandile's character as well you know you you touched on it but i've lost my train of thought um it it was you know you know the the this thing you know of you go into this marriage right um mm. she's young naive in a in a way and sh- mm. she grows and she finds herself so there's that coming to but i also want to say as well that 
You know, in a lot of patriarchal societies, right, a man like Ndaba is prized. Like people wouldn't understand why she would leave, you know, in the end. You know, when she, she wants to forge her own path, people would be like, no, but he's a good man. He doesn't beat you. He doesn't cheat. You drive an SUV, you're taken care of, you know. And, and, and you see, people don't understand why she would want to leave that setup. Like, people understand why Ayandisa would want to leave, but why are you going? Do you get what I'm trying? People are not sympathetic to people like Zandile, you know, who but I has think you, her own, yeah. You make a very interesting point about the, the patriarchal society that we live in and that we've been socializing allows us to sort of make trade-offs, right? So at least I've not been beaten. Yes, he yes. shouts and yes, he's not, he's controlling, but he's not beating me, right? Yes. So there is a, a, a way in which we navigate domestic violence, right? Because domestic violence includes financial abuse, emotional abuse. So we think that those ones are of a lesser uh, importance yeah. than actually being beaten, right? So you've got a, 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 a Zandile who is a successful young woman, right? And she's successful and she wants to be able to use her successes. She studied this degree and wants to be able to forge her way in this degree. And you have a man, even in the face of retrenchment and unemployment who says, why, why would my woman want to work, right? Like, why would you want to do that? And we don't characterize that as a form of abuse because it's not, I'm not being beaten. So it's really interesting to think about like how, for me, Zandile and Yandisa are really um, the two characters in the book, which shows us how we are even complicit in our own misfortune in relationships, right? Because you often find that we would say, <laughs> no, but Hambizi, you know, like he doesn't hit me. So yeah. because he doesn't hit me, I'm going to stay, right? And we're like, I mean, Amma spoke earlier about choice and I wanted to speak about like the exercise of choice even in a patriarchal society. Because we get a moment in the book where oh, Zandile is like, you know what? You can do what you want to do with your life, but I am making a decision about my own life. So even in that way, we see that there is a, a form of choice that, Yandisa, um, yeah, that Zandile got that we know was very challenging even in those circumstances. And I want you to speak a little bit about that, right? A little bit about the agency that you gave Zandile in that particular moment. Um, okay. <laughs> um, oh, you know how to respond. It's, it's just that I, I, I know what it feels like to come into your own. Because for a long time, um, people used to say, Sue, you never, you were quiet, okay? People, this is what people would say, but you used to be quiet. But now you, you're a loud mouth, you're vocal. And it's just about finding your voice. And I think for a long time, Zandida's character, she's, she conforms, she ticks all the boxes, she does what's expected to her, of, of her. But you, you reach a certain age where you, you ask yourself, is this, is this what I want? You know, and it, it can happen whether you're married or you're single, but you come into your own. And I think that's when you know, people will say you've changed, but you really haven't changed. You've just, you've become, you've come, you've grown into the person you're supposed to be. And I think that's what happened with Zandila's character. And so she, she makes hard choices as well. So that's, you know, really what I was trying to, to reflect. Makes sense. <laughs> I think that the concepts of, of coming into your own is interesting because you think of, 
how so many people's personalities have been changed by the trauma that they experienced, right? So, um, and this book has a lot of trauma that you've written about. Um, and I know that there's also criticism that's been leveled against the book is that there's a lot of trauma that the characters are subjected to. Um, but I'm particularly interested in the generational trauma that you explore, right? So we're starting to think about the ways in which our parents and our grandparents and, and the, all the people, that ancestry, I guess, the ways in which that trauma manifests in our, in our familial relationships. And I, I'm particularly interested in Yandisa and Babalwa as a case study um, and the ways in which trauma manifests for, for both of them. So I, I want to know why you used them as a vehicle for, for that, you know, and just to take it a step further, to think about Pumla as so who may have been a template, right? I think that, you know, older Black women's eyes are often not thought about outside of them being mothers and grandmothers and wives. But I think about Pumla in this instance as having really been a template for, for the generational trauma that we see play out in the relationship between Baba Anwar and Yantisa. So if we could talk a little bit about those characters as a, as a vehicle for generational trauma and I guess just those dysfunctional familial relationships. Okay, so let me start with the, the trauma and you're right. I mean, the biggest, you know, you know, some people have criticized me saying, you know, there's a lot of trauma in the book um, and that there's violence. And in response to that, I say, we are, we are in a violent society. Our societies are very violent. They are very traumatic. And the problem is that we never deal with the trauma. And that's why you have that Band-Aid on the cover. You know, we, we don't deal with trauma in Black families. Things happen and we just shove it under the rug. You know, we don't talk about it. You just, you have to keep it moving, basically. And it's only now people are talking about going to therapy, you know, to heal those wounds. Because a lot of things that happen in our childhoods manifest as adults. So if a lot of people are in relationships acting out things from the pain they suffered as children. And I talk of generational trauma because I believe that if you don't deal with things, they keep coming back. It, it repeats itself, you know, from one generation to the next. Um, and I, I think you, you, might, you may even see, you know, it doesn't even have to be in your own life. There's certain, you know, certain instances that keep repeating themselves. And I think, in each, the, when the same thing happens to you again, it's like you're given a, cho a choice, you know, to try and, and react differently or correct it. And if you don't, it will keep happening, you know. Um, and so that, for me, that's important, the whole, I mean, if someone, a person from a Christian background, really, they're probably, you know, related to generational curses. That's what they would call it, as opposed to the, the trauma. So you have Uyandisa, who gets raped, she gets pregnant, it's not dealt with. It's a shameful thing, she's bundled off. Um, it's not dealt with, you know, we keep it moving once again. We cover up and we, we keep it moving, you know, and we keep up that facade of, of perfection and everything's good, but we, we don't deal with Yandis's trauma. The same way we don't deal with Ubabala's trauma, you know, of, of finding out later about you know, her parentage the abandonment by her father, how did that affect her? And you see, so once again, we say she's acting up, we, we don't deal with it. Well, Pumla, her trauma, I don't know if you're speaking to the, in, in terms of the way she grew up, um, 
you know, because I in in the late in the last chapters of the book, I talk about her upbringing and the death in her family, and how she grew up, you know, literally, you know, motherless, you know, and fatherless, and how she yearned for a family, that sense of belonging, and then you see in the book in her marriage, the troubles they went through with Abraham, her leaving, you know, that constant, they were up and down, that constant, one minute we hear, we leave, back and forth, you know, and the trauma and how she dealt with the trauma, you know, and and imagine your children seeing that, but you, we, we never think about what the impact is on them, you know, seeing, you know, the parents in marriage. I mean, we say marriages are difficult, but what what is the impact of children seeing that? on them and and then how does that affect Ayandisa, right? Mm. And her married. I think it's interesting that you said uh, or you know you asked a question as to what parts of the trauma that I was speaking to because I mean yes you're right Puna has experienced multiple facets of trauma right but I also think when I was reading the book, I was thinking about infidelity as, as, a, as a source of trauma, right? And infidelity as an actual source of intimate partner violence, right? So you're constantly being subjected to infidelity because you're also in this patriarchal society that then um, places the responsibility of, of men's morality on women. So if your partner is cheating on you, it must be because you're not doing something or you're not cheating him more. And... I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, Abram and, and Pumla's relationship, right? Because you 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 make a commentary on the, the the various ways in which men are allowed grace and are allowed redemption. So Abram and Pumla, Abram is very problematic. He then finds the Lord and he has this moment of redemption. And it's almost as if everything else that he's ever done is expected to be swept away. And I felt that there was a commentary on, on redemption and grace. And I, I wanted to perhaps just go a little bit deeper into why you felt that that was so necessary to really make what is quite a striking commentary around the, the grace and the redemption that is allowed to men in these societies that they find themselves in. So, so I think the redemption and grace thing is, is specifically is, comes from the church. I mean, if you think about how you're born again as a Christian, I mean, today, if you decided to be born again, it's like you are you are you are clean. You're starting on a clean slate. I mean, it doesn't get any cleaner than that. So it's like reset zero. Everything you've done in the past is is no longer relevant. So it's from that perspective that you know he gets like literally he's he's like a new man, basically born again in this new form. And you know he he yeah so. All in everything he's done up until then, it becomes negligent. But obviously, the thing with actions, they all have consequences. And those, but those consequences will stay whether you're born again or not. And yeah, so for that's that's Abraham's character. Like for him, it was a reset in terms of, you know, I'm this new man and I'm gonna new navigate, you know, this. You know, this is my new life, you know, and yeah, so that's, you know, and, but I think that goes for both men and women, okay, um, if you decided, to, it's not like, it's just, you know, um, it's a thing that men can experience, women too as well, you just, I'm so I'm talking from a, the biblical perspective of being born again, that you become a whole new person, 
but yeah, like you say, men do get that allowance. Um, now we're talking, if we're talking about the patriarchal side, men are given that allowance, you know, that once they apologize, everything's all right and everybody has to conform. You know, you forgive and forget and keep it moving. Whereas with women, you know, they don't get that same latitude when it comes to infidelity. Yeah, so. You make quite a striking commentary on, on infidelity in the book, right? I mean, and we feel quite strongly about Abram's ways and we're all just, you know, we also want to cast against him. But it's very interesting that Zandile is the one who's also then unfaithful to her partner. And I want to know why you specifically chose Zandile and what and what what was the writing process for that, right? Because Zandile in many ways is the is the typical good wife. She's the one who does everything by the book. And yet in a book where you've written almost very critically about her father's um, infidelity and, and the toll that it's taken on the family, you then choose her to be the one who's unfaithful to her partner. Uh, simply because she was also trying to find herself. I mean, she's at that point. I mean, she she thinks her husband has lived his life, and she's wondering, okay, what what is there? What you know? What is out there? I've never had any, you know anything else. It's just you know. So for me, it was that that curiosity from her side, you know, because she's always conformed. I mean, towed the line basically, and you know, she's just trying to you know find herself, I guess. So I, for me, it was just like. Yes, she's the most unlikely, you know, but sometimes, you know, it's those unlikely characters that, you know, <laughs> that surprise you. And I wanted, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I wanted to talk a little bit about secrecy, right? I feel like really closely connected with the trauma in the book is also a lot of secrecy. Um, you, as Almas, as you've mentioned earlier, Zandile is raped. There's this child that is hidden. But we also know that Abraham had children before the marriage um, and those children are also hidden. Uh -huh. uh, and there just seems like to be like a lot of secrets and secrecy about children in this family. And the way that the, the truth or the secret comes out is not pretty on both fronts, right? And how in many ways the secrecy also you know, works to, to fracture the family even further, right? So Baba Loahu, in, 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 in sort of like a, a false security type of way was someone who like had a really like lovely childhood and da, 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 da. And then when, her secret, when the secret comes out, Baba Loahu's life drastically changes, right? And Baba Loahu's reaction to the family to do you love me drastically changes. And even the boys, right? When the boys come out from the woodworks eventually, they also come out and say, but do you know how we've grown up? As if to say, you've deprived us of this childhood that you have had, right? So I wanted to speak about that, like how, how secrecy essentially is an enactment of trauma, right? And how it, how it, it, it sort of shapes people's lives and, 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 and these two like children and how, how that, was, was a major arc in the book about like how people were deprived of, on both fronts, Babala was deprived of the truth and the life that she lived and the sons were deprived of the truth and a father that they could have had. Yeah, you know, I've, that's a very important thing because I find it happens a lot in black families, right? Um, you go to a funeral and suddenly people are pointing out, oh, those are the, the kids, you know, they're his kids, but, yeah, they're part of the family. So most of the time we always meet these people at, at funerals. 
And I just wanted to make a commentary on that and how damaging, you know, that is to the psyche. And in the, in the book, we have two instances, actually. So you have Uncle Ben's kids who show up after he's died, you know, um, who's teenage kids. And you have Abraham. So you, you see, the thing with, 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 with Abraham, he, has this, he had a life before. And, you, you, you know, you finally discover later that he has these kids. And the thing is with, the, with secrets, they, they're used to weaponize, like you say, because when they come out, it's never pretty. Because the one who holds the secret can use them, you know, to either threaten you or to destroy you. And I know there's there was a lot of indictment against you know Sisindombi. There were people were saying like, but it wasn't her place um, to bring the boys, you know, out. And my question is, well, would who when would when who would have brought them out? So sometimes you need those people like Susan Dombey to blow the, you know, the bomb out of the water. <laughs> I don't know the, what the expression is. And yes, they grew up differently. Uvumani um, and, and Wandile. And, and look how their trajectories in life were different. I mean, so we, we can always surmise, like, would Wandile have been a different person had he grown up in the same household? We don't know, we'll never know. Um, and so it's those kind of things um, that we need to be mindful of. Um, these, these children that are, are separated and are seen, you know, they, they live a parallel life. Um, that, you know, it's important that we, we're mindful that how that damages their psyche too. They're not seen, not being heard, you know, and not belonging. So I think that was the point of that, you know, uh, thread in the book. I mean, I, so Aunt Ndombi and her star, just interesting characters for me, right? There's a, or Rahadi, I think we all remember that Rahadi was trending and also plays into the stereotype of this older black woman who's very problematic, right? Who um, is a gatekeeper of patriarchy, et cetera, et cetera. And you, in some ways, one of the characters plays into the stereotype and one of the characters plays out or plays against the stereotype, right? So you have these two very different contrasts. And I want to talk a little bit about Orakhadi, right? Because I, I think it's so interesting that there's, there's this demonization of the older Black woman, and you see it occur at different points in Black women's lives, right? So you either become the Rakhadi, or it can go so far as you are the granny who the village people murder, right? Because you are seen to be a witch and there's all of these assumptions that get made about older women and being witches. You never hear of like older grandfathers being called wizards, but somehow there's always like an older black woman who's accused of, of witchcraft and being harmed. And so I wanna talk a little bit about this, the, I guess, playing into the stereotype and why you made the conscious decision to play into the stereotype and why you also then made quite a conscious decision to have a character who in many ways rebels against that stereotype. Because the thing is, um, the stere there is truth to the stereotype. We all know a Rahadi like that, you know, and I think we need to be honest. We have, you know, older women in our families who are gatekeepers of patriarchy. And, you know, we need to just acknowledge that as truth, they are there and they make our lives hell. And that it is what it is. Like you saw that Rahadi at the funeral. But I also wanted to say, you know, I don't want to demonize all Rahadis, you know, because I'm also a Rahadi somewhere, you know. And, you know, so they're different types of Rahadis everywhere. 
So it's important to show, you know, the two. Because a lot of the times, you know, Rahadis do get a bad rep. Um, but I'm, I'm not saying, you know, it's without reason. There are some Rahadis who do, who do deserve that bad rep, and there's some who don't. And I think, as you know, you can choose to go with, you know, which way do you go, you know, in life? It's also another the choice. So, yeah. I, I want us to talk about Wesley. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I if I hated a character as much as I hated Wesley in this book. Like I just don't know if there was like someone in this book who was like, "Hey, Shreezy King Wesley, I just I I I I don't know." Like like Wesley Umpa, uh, uh, like I just want to I do. and I think one of the reasons for that is that there is a lot of like grace in many ways that Wesley extends to himself and uses that grace in a manipulative way. And I'm saying this because Wesley will tell us how he grew up, how difficult his life was, and how like we need to sort of garner sympathy for Wesley in this moment because Wesley has had such an incredibly difficult life. But Wesley is like just a trashy person, right? One, trashy because Wesley weaponizes the fact that Uyandisa doesn't have a, a sort of a family um, that, that, you know, her family is constantly shunning her out. So weaponizes that to be like, Yandisa has got nowhere to go. So Yandisa is going to stay with me and Yandisa is going to like, is supposed to love me. And then on a number of occasions, like Wesley literally rapes Yandisa because, you know, Wesley has this idea that he's entitled to sex and he has put a roof over Yandisa's head, so he must be paid in some ways. And Yandisa can't go anywhere, right? Like, where is the safe space for women in the world? Wesley is trashy. Wesley says, ah, I've changed. I'm going to uh, marry you. Wesley doesn't, first of all, show up. When Wesley shows up, we are all rejoicing. We are all happy because you know what? Uh, finally, our daughter who is damaged goods is going to belong to someone, right? Wesley beats Yandisa up. Still, we are like, oh, no, Wesley, ah, it's fine. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Eventually, Wesley kills Yandisa, man. Like, literally. But for me, it's like all Yandisa's death is overshadowed in all these little moments of Wesley's violence, right? But where does Yandisa have a safe space in the world to go? And also, how are we as society holding Wesley accountable? right? How are we as a society holding Wesley accountable? Because I feel we're complicit in many ways in Yandisa's ultimate demise. Even as we as readers, like, we kind of want to see where this is going. We are like, really like accomplices in, uh, in, in Yandisa's de- demise. And I wanted to talk about that, just like how absolutely trashy Wesley is, right? And like how where is the where is the the justice? How are we holding Wesley accountable? So for me, there is no justice. There is no justice for women. I mean, every day we see trashy men get away with it. And for me, that's you know, for me, that's the biggest vindication on society is that men get away with it all the time. You know, very few men are brought to account to their actions. Um, and yeah, and I really think there really is no safe space 
you know, for women. And that, so Wesley's character embodies that, that violence against women. And he represents the toxic masculinity. I mean, Wesley did everything possible, you know, that, um, to, to Yandis, I mean, the rape, like you said, the entitlement, the violence. And I, 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 like, I like the observation where you say we cheered, we also cheered, like a lot of people when they're reading the book, when it comes to Lobola, they're like, yes, he came. But you, up in, you know, even before that, you know, you already could see what kind of person he was. Um, like you said, I really started to foreshadow what, you know, what kind of man we're dealing with. But people were excited that Wesley showed up, you know, he came with the cows, you know, he's marrying her. And, and that's what we like as a society. We, we, don't, we don't really care. He could be the trashiest of men, but the fact that he's putting a ring on it suddenly, you know, absolves him of whatever else he may have done. And, and that's where we go. The, you know, the bar is so low, you know, for men. It's, it's just so low, you know, they just have to show up, you know. Um, yeah, and women, women just have to, you know, slurp it, slurp it all up, you know, basically. And, and that's, that was Yandisa, you know. She, she took it all. Um, yeah. So yes, I think everybody hates Wesley. I, I haven't come across anyone who, who's a fan of Wesley. But the interesting thing, like, so a lot of people say there's a lot of sex in the book. But, you know, I pointed out, you know, some of the sex is non-consensual and that's important. We need to see what non-consensual sex looks like, even in a marriage, okay? There is non-consensual sex. And we see a lot of that, okay? So I had a comment from a guy actually who, who DM'd me and he said, yes, I like it rough like Wesley. And I was disturbed, you know? You, you, so you, <laughs> it just left me disturbed. And I, and I said, I hope you realize that, you know, it was rapey sex, you know? So yeah, it's, yeah, Wesley's character. Yeah, it is what it is. Mm. I think it's it's you know there's a there's a comment that I think is made in the book around complicity that you've just spoken about. So yes, complicity for readers, but complicity for the people around Wesley, right? So you know, um, you spoke you or people say they don't like Wesley, but there are so many Wesleys in their lives, right? That they don't ostracize, that they don't cut out of their communities. I mean, we never ever see uh, Wesley's family in the book saying. Like, why are you doing this? You know, even the way in which his friends like confront him about some of his behavior, it's just so superficial and, and superfluous that it just doesn't even hold weight. And so I think greater than the 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 complicity of the readers, there's a there's a question asked about the complicity of the community in the book. Because people dislike Wesley and a lot of people dislike Wesley. And yet there are so many Wesleys in their own personal lives who are allowed to just continue in the way that they are. There's no shame attached to mistreating their rights. This is why that guy could tell you that he likes it like Wesley and actually not be disturbed that he likes anything similar to Wesley, who's such a horrible character. Um, and for me, I felt that you were asking questions around communal complicity. What does it mean to hold the men in our lives accountable um, in ways that really have significant impact on them, on their community, on their ability to just even socialize, right? Like Wesley still still finds a partner after having killed Yanti. Mm -hmm. So 
true. There's the question of communal complicity, okay? It also goes back, because we're in a patriarchal society, okay? Men don't call each other out. Men really call, you know, their, their friends out for when they behave badly. Um, I remember there was a man friend that I had and his friend wasn't paying maintenance, right? And I said, you need to speak to him and call him out. And he's like, it's none of my business, right? So a lot of the times, men also don't call each other to account. I mean, the only time um, in the book where you see that happen is when JD says to Wesley, you know, we all damage goods, right? Um, that, you know, that's like the furthest, you know, they, they ever go to, to call out his behavior. But most of the time, they are accomplices, you know. So you find that a lot of men in society look away when other men do things that they don't approve of, okay? There's never, they never called, you know, to account. Then we have the second layer of, of women as well. Women also don't call out their brothers for doing trashy things. So you like, uh, you leave it, you look, you, you turn an eye. The same with mothers. Mothers also molly cuddle their, their problematic children, you know? So, so they're allowed to flourish sort of, you know, without, you know, being called to order basically. And so in this society, then you, you, that's how we end up with wastefuls basically. Nobody calls them out until, yeah. And they, and they basically become loose cannons. And, and it, this is what, you know, we, we live with every day. We, we live with men like this who are not called out. A man will his wife and people say, no, it's, it's a domestic affair. It's none of my business. I'm not getting involved, right? But you're brying with the same guy, but he's a cool guy. You see what I'm trying to get at? Mm. So that's, that's, that's why we are where we are. And I always say, you know, as women, we can, we can try and do all sorts of things, right? To, to get men to act right. But men also need to start calling each other out as well to say, no, look, guys, this is not on. And that's, you know, it has to start there. I wanted to speak a little bit about personal politics versus, you know, uh, an author and personal politics. And this is um, sort of at the backdrop of like, you know, J.K. Rowling, Chimamanda, um, and, and speak about like, um, you know, sort of like, what is the responsibility of an author, right? In order to sort of reel back, let's call them the problematic politics in many instances, right? Uh, or what the world would view as problematic because maybe in an author's mind or a person's mind, what they view to be problematic may be different to what society views to be problematic. But just the idea of like, in writing a family affair, do you think that some of your personal politics made it into the book? Or do you think that there was a divide? You were like, I'm not writing as Sunyati the person, I'm writing as Sunyati the writer. And maybe there are things that I don't agree with or I agree with that I'm not going to express in the book. I'm really interested in like, sort of like the trade off that, that writers have when it comes to writing books that may be quite close or that they may hold different politics to. How do you navigate that space? Okay, so there's they, they certain things, right? I, like I, say, I said before, there needs to be an honesty in the narrative as well. So I remember there, there's a part when Uzandi Lebam Laya, just before she gets married, and a lot of people were angry, like, oh, I mean, how could you write that? You know, it's bullshit. <laughs> and I'm saying, you know, I'm not speaking as Sue, you know, it's, 
that's those that's what is said in in those rooms you know um so i have a responsibility as well to tell it like it is i'm not going to sugarcoat it and say yeah, if it was a different novel if i was writing how i would like it to be you know maybe you know i would come up with different a different kind of sermon in that room but i'm in this book i'm just telling it like it is um it's that's the reality i mean even though it's fictional it's fiction it's 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 it's, it's called a they have a name for it fic, uh, real real fictional realism i think it's called i don't know okay so for me it's it's capturing the truth of our society as it is today um and the reason why i want to do that is hopefully one day you know someone who's doing social anthropology could you know pick up this book and see how we were living at this point in time because you know this is how we we are living and we have been living for many years i mean if you think like i'm saying if i started writing this in my 20s and these are things that i started to see then and i'm still seeing them now it means really there hasn't been much in terms of how our society has evolved people are still holding on to those traditions mores and practices um and so yeah so I might not necessarily agree with everything. Um, and in, in terms of, but you know, it's, it's what I've seen in our society um, happen and how you know, things are done. And you know, we, we have these traditions that we keep passing on. Some of them are very problematic. Um, if you look at virginity as a construct, it's problematic, but we still want that standard. Um, and, and so, yes, I might not necessarily agree with the thing that you know I need I need to put them there. And people get angry, you know, they'll be like, hey, Sue. <laughs> but it is what it is. Yeah. And I wanted to know, connected with this, what about the writer's role to reimagine, right? So what do you think about if even in this patriarchal, toxic, violent world, you wrote a different story? What if a family affair was actually a, a story that wasn't about shoving things under the carpet and sort of stitching them together. What if the role as, uh, if you consider yourself to be a feminist writer, to do some, some feminist recreation and feminist reimagining, right? Uh, where these women's lives were not marred with such difficulty, but they were joyful, that like Koli Swa's um, chartered accountancy and brilliancies for what it is was what it is, right? I, I, so I'm really interested in, in whether those were some of the, the things that you were thinking about, right? To be like, can this be reimagined or do I want to just, you know, tell it as it is and not participate in some, some feminist work in many instances? No, I, I just wanted to tell it, is, tell it like it is because it, it's things that were bothering me. And I find it very hard to reimagine a different reality because of the boundaries that we have to play in. You know, there's this invisible, you know, it doesn't matter where you are, it's, it's there. Like, it's like a little box. And, you know, you, you like, you, you are, you, you literally are sort of, you know, stuck in this like mold. And, and for me, it's because this book is, is, is a reflective book. Um, that it, that's why it was just important for me because, I, it, you know, these are things that have been bothering me for years. And so I just wanted to put it out there. So I wasn't really trying to, you know, think you know, okay how would it be different because you know we still we still living in this world um and you know over you know these past years i really haven't the change for me has been really superficial 
Um, I remember in my 20s, I was thinking, I used to think women could have it all, right? I had, you know, I was like, we can have it all. But in my 40s, yeah, I, I know we can't have it all. <laughs> you know, and yeah, so yeah. So for me, it's just like, yeah, just trying to put out my frustrations. And look, it's not like entirely miserable. I mean, there are moments of joy in the book. There are, I mean, our characters do get moments of joy, but you know Speaking this- of the joy, mm. what is the most difficult part of of the book to write for you because i mean there are some really jarring scenes that i can think of you know um baba Lua and diandisa and wesley that whole just triangulum was just so horrible to witness on the outside when you're thinking of the grooming that takes place the abuse and this like perpetual cycle of abuse that gets um perpetuates in this family uh, and I can only imagine you know what's what how difficult it may have been to write that but I, I want to know what was the most difficult part of the book to write for you but also what was the most joyful part of the book to write for you okay so I, I really enjoyed writing um the wedding scenes because I think generally weddings evoke that yada yada you know that happiness and so those were were enjoyable scenes to write the most difficult books, the parts of the book were obviously the violence. I mean, um, yeah, writing the violence when, you know, the violence between Wesley and Yanisa was, was, was hard because um, you, I, I, I didn't want to make those scenes flowery because violence is gritty. It's, it's demeaning, it's cruel, and I wanted to paint that picture, you know, because um, I find in a lot of books that I read, people romanticize violence between a man and a woman. It's like clap, clap, kiss, kiss, you know. And I, I just don't like how that met portrayal. So that's the um, that's the part, yeah, that I, I you know, I, I really struggled because I really wanted to portray violence as violence, right? And I think the ending was probably the most difficult part because, uh, yeah, that how that you know the book ends, that whole trio, you know, um, Yandisa, Wesley, and Baba Aloha, because yeah, how to you know portray that? But I think people obviously could infer. I don't want to be you know explicit, but you know I think you could infer what what really transpired that night. Yeah. So yeah. I get really mad. I think one of the very important themes of the book is, is marriage as, as, a, as a conduit for patriarchy. Because we, we, we see the start of the book, which um, before we end that, like you just to read, you know, that first one and a half page just to set us in the scene of a family affair. But we see the start of a book uh, as this marriage and how the family is elated about one of their children getting married and how in truth, in the beginning, we see Kloliswa as someone who also yearns for the marriage, right? And who has been in this 10 year relationship hoping for marriage and then voila, um, and then we, we see her sort of move, shift and move and, 
and 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 struggle with this idea of like what if like what if actually in truth like maybe marriage is not where I want to be right but this family and this society and this world has said to me if I do not get married I will not be considered someone in the world right so there's a sort of a reimagining in Kulisa's part one on the chosen family thing that we spoke about earlier, but also on like maybe marriage is not a destination that people make it out to be. Maybe like I, I, I actually I'm content with the way that my life is. And, you know, she even makes that concession. She says, you know, maybe this is how I want my life to be made. This works better for me. But just to speak about like marriage as, 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 as a patriarchal institution and how like in many ways, like no matter how successful you are, no matter how, how woke you may be, how conscious you may be, like there are certain instances where even you are like, actually, you know what? Society is not going to see me if I'm not married. They're not going to see me as anyone if I'm not married. And I want to speak about that, right? Like the, the deeply problematic ways in which we, we, we still allow marriage and patriarchy to control our lives, even as people who should know better. Yeah, I don't know how we can, <laughs> we can, you know, change that because <laughs> like it or not, um, it, you're right, it's still the thing, to, you know, I mean, people say marriage is not an achievement, but then you have this banner, it is an achievement, you know, um, people around you keep screaming, it is an achievement. It is something, you know, that one needs to attain. And it, it, it's really difficult, you know, because it's always like, oh, you speak like that because you, you never got married. Um, do you get what I'm saying? And, and Chimamanda can speak like that because she has, she is married. She can say marriage is not an achievement because she has her husband, you know, sitting beside her. So people are like, okay, yeah, but you are married. Do, do, do you get what I'm saying? So, so it's, it's, it's always that there's always going to be that tension and it continues. I mean, I think, and they see the other thing why I revisited this manuscript is I have a younger sister. I mean, she's 15 years younger than me. And so her, her and her friends are all like 20, 25, 26. So the past couple of years, you know, I watched them all, you know, get married. They're all professionals, you know, doctors, you know, whatever. But they were like, we need to get married. And these are people 15 years younger than me. Okay. So they're not thinking any differently, right? Okay. You would think, okay, this new crop of, of, of women coming up, they're educated, they've got great careers. Maybe they're trying to reimagine another way to live on their own, you know, travel, whatever, you know. But no, we need to get married. It's still, it's still something we all aspire to do. So, yeah, so I think for, you know, our society is still geared that way. That's still the thinking that, you know, you, 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 you sort of like become certified <laughs> in marriage, you know, like, yeah, and it, it is what it is. So I, I don't know, little, little, I don't know what more to say, <laughs> you know, about yeah, I, mean, that. I think it's, it's interesting that, you know, that you said that, um, 
you're seeing that even with younger women, right, that even with access, so I feel like you make that commentary in the book that a lot of the women in this book have access, they're educated, but you don't, you also realize that people don't operate in, in silos or in vacuums, right, so, so much of your personal politics may also be informed by the community in which you find yourself. Um, and so that's not necessarily, I guess, reflective of your inability to to adapt to change your politics, but it also speaks to the fact that you don't, you are not exempt from the pressures that your community may be exerting upon you, right? Because there's things about respectability and, and the ways in which, I mean, I'm married. So I, I, I was saying this to my friend the other day that I, I have seen the way in which being married has also altered um, people's perception of my of my politics, right? Yeah. So so when you make commentary that it, or or when you are seen to have feminist politics, um, it's almost I guess rationaled by the fact that you're married, um, and that affords you some responsibility as well, you know. So it's 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 yes, we are expecting or we would hope that that access would mean that women may make different choices. But I also think that there's an interesting commentary in the book about how women, even with access, operate in patriarchal societies that may not allow those choices to be possible, right? So there's a responsibility that's afforded to you, regardless of how educated or uneducated you are, that's directly linked to marriage or not being married. Um, and I don't think that, that being educated can shelter you from that kind of patriarchal standard. And, 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 and the thing is, I explore different reasons for people getting married as well. I mean, Zandi, they married for love, right? Um, Yandisa got respectability when she got married. You know, she, she had a newfound status. I mean, people looked at her different, treated her differently because of marriage. And I think it's the same, you know, even on a real world, people get married for different reasons, peer pressure, you know, um, just, you know, the, yeah, the politics, you, you've ticked that box and you keep it moving. So they, they different reasons. I mean, for some, it's just, you know, the financial aspect of it. Um, you've, you've got a place. So it's, it's different. And I think I, I did go into quite, uh, you know, a detail about, those conversations as well when they're at Zandila's birthday party when the women are all talking about you know marriage and what it means to be married and the different perspectives yeah so I mean what's next for you so um this book has been well received I know you're on your second reprint or your first reprint um which is amazing just considering the the kind of impacts that lockdowns had on the the publishing industry what's next for you is there another manuscript that's been lying around for 10 years? There is. Um, and um, because, because you know, I was trying something with this one. I was like, okay. Um, and it worked. Clearly it worked because, I mean, the book has, well, has been well received. So we probably we will be going for our third reprint now this year. Um, and which is phenomenal. I mean, because it only came out in October. So that's amazing. And I'm, I'm really thankful to everybody who's bought a copy. Um, so I have another manuscript that I, I actually started writing when I was 15. <laughs> it's called, well, the title then was called Skeletons in the Closet. Um, so that I want to revisit again. Um, I mean, I wrote it over many years. I started when I was 15. Um, and that, but that it's more, that will be like more of, a, in terms of historical fiction, um, in terms of genre. Um, because it, 
it's it's you know looks at at a you know a different at a different time um, and I just want to take it back even further you know back in in time and start maybe because it starts in Rhodesia right and I actually wanted to explore more of that of that history in our country as well and try and incorporate it but yeah that's definitely my my long term project that I want to do um, I mean I think that book the story it was a very powerful story even then. And I, I, I know I can sort of repurpose it and rewrite it again, but you know, th there's something there with that book. So I, I definitely want to revisit that one, but it's going to be, a, that's it's not something that uh, will happen anytime soon. Um, there's a lot of research I need to do as well um, and work in that. But in the near term, um, I owe, I owe readers the sequel to The Polygamist and you know, they've been bothering me for years. <laughs> so um, yeah, I have to deliver on that. So, so that's my, my, on my to-do list um, in, the near, in the near term. Oh, that's really exciting, Sue. Uh, so we have uh, potentially two new titles coming out um, that we can enjoy. Um, for all you chickenators who've loved this conversation, um, and would like to get yourself a copy of um, the A Family Affair, please know that the Cheeky Merchant has signed copies. Um, so you'll just go to our website and then, you know, press buy, um, and then we will deliver. And because we are Cheeky natives who love buying books and supporting Black authors, we're not going to ask the author for a PDF. We're not going to sort of try and bootleg it somewhere. You know, that's not what we're going to do. What we are doing is we're going to buy books and we're going to buy them from the Cheeky Merchant because they're signed copies. Um, and yes, so thank you very much, Sue, for, you know, sitting with us in conversation. I know that there's lots more to discuss about this book because there's a lot of complexity. But thank you for um, allowing us, you know, an opportunity just to sit and go a little bit deeper um, um, thinking about a family affair. Uh, we're really excited to um, see what, what is next. Um, uh, in terms of um, the sequel to The Polygamist, but also this uh, historical fiction that you will give us one day at one point. Uh, and we wish you the very, very best, uh, a really warm um, 2021 uh, in terms of opportunities, in terms of reprints uh, from the Cheeky Natives. Thank you so much. It was lovely chatting to you as always. Thank you everyone for listening. We are so excited. We will see you um, at the next Cheeky Natives event. Stay tuned uh, to our social media. Uh, but just to echo what Atlokonola said, I mean, it's exciting. Sue is now on her third reprint. And this is what happens when you buy books and support Black authors. So let's keep the energy and let's leave all the bad vibes of PDFs and piracy in 2020. Because uh, we're better people now. It's a Panasonic. We just need to be better. Um, <laughs> but that's us from the Cheeky Natives and we're excited to see you at the next event.